Hi, everybody. This is episode 42 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, it is such a pleasure to spend some more time with you. I'm so glad that you've come back. We're going to have a great episode, but I just want to remind you to go to our website, thebiblelab.com, T-H-E-BibleLab.com, and make sure you get your study guide to go along with this study. There's a bunch of things there that uh, some things we don't even have time to cover some weeks, but we want to make sure that you are able to follow along exactly where we are in the study and make sure you're able to take some notes as well. It's going to be a great study this week. We're we're taking a look at an angle of God you typically don't think about. Now, the previous episode, we took a look at how Gideon tested God to see, God, are you serious? Can I trust you? And this session, we're actually taking a look at God saying, Gideon, I'm going to test you. I need to see if you're faithful. And this brings up a lot of questions, and I know it's going to bring up a lot of answers for you, too. So I'm so glad that you're here with us this week. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. All right, here we go. Number one, as a young person, I was known as a daredevil. As a young person, I was known as a daredevil. Oh my word, look at this group of absolute wimps. I am seeing almost all no's. I'm seeing maybe five or six percent yes. Five or six percent yes. A couple are saying yes just because you're ashamed that you're scared to do daredevil type stuff. But some of you are kind of shocking me. Daredevils, all right. Number two. If I were traveling to a dangerous country, I'd feel safer in a large group rather than traveling alone. Oh yeah, that's what I expected. After the first vote, I'm not surprised to see 99% of you say, yes, I'll be in the middle of the group. If someone starts shooting, I've got plenty of protection. I'm only seeing, out of a group of about 400, I'm seeing about five no's. I don't know what the stats are, but that's not very good. Okay. So many of you would feel safer in a large group. Number three, when working on a project, if I sense that most people are not supporting it, I set it aside and work on something else. When working on a project, if I sense that most people are not supporting it, I set it aside and work on something else. Okay, let's look here. We're a bit mixed, but it looks like there are about 60% no's, 35% yeses, and 5% maybes. Hmm. That means most of you, you would continue doing it, even if the majority of the, uh, of the crowd was saying, eh, I'm not, I'm not really excited about it. But the rest of you are like, uh, I, need some, I need some moral support. I need to see that uh, I, I get some confirmation from the people around me that this is something we should do. Okay? And I don't know what the maybes mean. Number four, God does not need me to prove anything to him. God does not need me to prove anything to him. All right, I'm seeing a bunch of yeses come up. It looks like about, about 96, 95% yeses. It looks like a split between the maybes and the noes for the remainder, 5%. Okay, so most of you are saying God does not need you to prove anything to him. 
You want to change your vote now, or do you want to <laughs> wait until we're at the end? You want me to ask this at the end again? And Greg says no. I want to ask what, what you responded with, Greg. We really got to take a look at this, because as we continue into the story of Gideon, we have to ask, well, what's God trying to prove? Gideon's just gone through this whole series of tests. God, give me a sign. Give me a sign. And by the way, before we go any farther, I need to say a great, great big thank you to Raul Esperante, who led last week in the Bible Lab. Where are you, Raul? Wave your hand. There he is, way in the back. Raul, you are are an inspirational man and an intelligent man and much funnier than me. And... (laughs) You blessed everyone, and I got just a flood of, of compliments of what you did last week, which shows us that um, God is working in this group. This is not my class. This is our community, right? And it proved one more time that the Holy Spirit will use all of us and use who we are in our own armor and in our own personality and have us all have a breakthrough every single Sabbath. And so thank you, Raul. You are a blessing to our entire community. Raul shared with us last week about Gideon asking for signs, and it's okay to ask for signs, and this whole thing of, you know, providence. It's this whole time of Gideon saying, God, prove, prove to me. Prove to me this is what you want to do. Prove to me you're going to be with me. So this whole lead up is Gideon saying, God, I need signs. Today we're stepping into the next part of the story where God says, okay, great. I gave you your signs. Now I need some signs. I'm going to ask you for signs. And that's why I take a pause here at number four, where it says God does not need me to prove anything to him because yes, it's a, it's a, it's a poor statement because you can take it many, many different ways, but I want us to slice this pear to be able to see what is it that God needs you to prove to him? Because otherwise, what he does with Gideon is nonsense. And our God does not do anything that's nonsensical. Everything he does is brilliant. And so as we step into this next part of the story, and God says, okay, I need some signs from you. The question is, what does God need Gideon to prove to God? And does God himself ask for signs? The same way that we ask for signs. And we're going to take a look at that today. Number five... God needs to take the credit for all of the victories in my life. God needs to take the credit for all the victories in my life. Oh, look at this. We are split. Once again, the no's are about 60%. The yeses are about 35%. And the maybes are 5%. Majority of you are saying, no, God does not need to take credit. We might want to vote on this one again after we discuss, okay? Is that okay? Because at least in how the story is told, it seems to say that God says, I need signs from you because I need you to give me credit. Because if you do it your way, you're going to take the credit and I need the credit. The question is, the character of God, does it make sense? How does it fit? Why would God need to take the credit? Why would God need to take the credit? Remember, our lab control here is God is love. love. And anything that might suggest that God is anything less than love is heresy. And so if you look at this, it's that God is saying he needs to take credit. And that doesn't seem very loving. That seems kind of narcissistic. 
Those are the beautiful places for us to dig into the scripture, isn't it? Because those are the places that we have so much to discover that we've just kind of stepped over and we've misinterpreted and things have gotten lost in translation. And so today, as we step into the second part of this whole battle story of of Gideon, I, I want you to keep in mind these statements that God says where he needs them to give him credit. And I need you to give me some signs. We're going to see what does that say about the character of God today. And to get ourselves in that mindset, i got to ask you some questions. First questions, what is one of the most frightening moments of your life, and how did God interact at that time, or did he seem distant? So what is one of the most frightening moments of your life, and how did God interact at that time? If you'd like to comment, raise a comment card. If you have a question, raise a question card, and we will get a microphone right to you. We're going to start with Sharon. We were moving from northern Ontario, Canada, to Loma Linda. That's scary enough. (laughs) Yes, I'd never been to California before, but that's beside the point. Yeah. We had the things we immediately needed for what we thought was going to be one year in in a trailer behind our car. We were coming across Michigan, and suddenly that trailer started weaving back and Mm -hmm. forth, and you could feel the forces in the car. And on our right, there was a ditch that went way down, probably 10 feet or more. And I knew we were going to go over, and my then-husband, you could just feel him fighting it. Mm -hmm. And I was praying like everything, Lord, you know, Please protect us. Hmm. And our four-year-old son was in the back, and I told him, get down on the floor. Well, why, Mommy? Son, just get down on the floor. Try to protect him. We had the dog in the back there, too, but I couldn't tell him what to do. (laughs) Um, And the, the way to correct that would be to step on the gas. My husband couldn't step on the gas because of the traffic in front of us. Mm. What he had to do was ease on the brakes so he wouldn't hit the car in Mm. front of us, which was two or three car lengths ahead, Mm. which is the absolute wrong thing to do when that thing was just jerking back and forth behind us. Mm. And you could just feel the car. It was going to go any minute. I thought that back of that car was going. And I prayed. And I don't know what happened other than the fact that the Lord straightened that thing out. Hmm. And when we could, we pulled over to the side of the road. And we prayed and thanked God. And my husband was really shook up, and he needed some time to get it together again. But that was the scariest moment in Hmm. my life. Wow. Thank you, Sharon. Over here. Marina. I was driving to work in the rain, and I was in the middle lane. So cars on either side of me. As I peeked the hill, both cars on either side of me came towards me. And there was nothing I could do. Hit the brakes. Didn't matter. They didn't see me. And I said, okay, Lord, here it goes. Boom. They were gone just like that. Miraculous. Amazing. Jack. When we were uh, at uh, missionaries in Puerto Rico, 
I had access to uh, another physician's aircraft. Price of gasoline was very high on our side of the island, so we always uh, filled tanks from the other side of the island where it was cheaper and uh, transported it out of the tanks on the plane to some five-gallon drums so that we, if we had to go someplace in emergency, we were ready to go. One Sunday, uh, I was with my older son, and we went down to transfer gasoline out of the wing tanks into the gallon drums. We had an automatic electric pump sitting on top of the uh, drums that had been purchased by this other physician and told me to use it. Hmm. I was very inexperienced, and all of a sudden, as we were transferring that, my son yelled, fire. Oh, no. So instinctively, I ran across and grabbed the uh, pump and slung it across the hangar floor and started to beat on the top of the tanks with uh, my bare hands and some cloths that I found there. When we examined the hose that had been in the tank, it was charred all the way to the bottom. Mm. This story is better told in evening rounds. So mm. it, wow. God and his angels were certainly there. That is amazing. Thank you, Jack. Back here. Yes, I was traveling in a foreign country. Um, only one other companion, but we were stopped by some Middle Eastern men out in the desert. And the, my, the friend, she got very nervous and started just kind of screaming. So the gentleman, well, let's not call him a gentleman, <laughs> pointed a semi-automatic rifle at us. So I just, uh, luckily God kept me quiet and I just stared at the man and he finally just left us alone. But I do believe God intervened because he had a real sharp trigger finger. Oh my word, <laughs> how scary is that? In your question here, you said, how did God interact at that time? Or did he seem distant? Yeah. Well, it depends on how a frightening incident happened. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of two different incidents that happened very closely together. In, in 1980, I was living in Lebanon during the Civil, civil War. Mm -hmm. And an incident happened one evening where somebody mistook my action and thought I was interacting with a young lady that was their girlfriend and uh, had a very Middle Eastern response to that. <laughs> and my life was immediately threatened. Hmm. And uh, they had the means to do something because it was during the Civil War. Hmm. And so I was very quickly evacuated out of the area back up to the college. And everybody was very concerned. In that particular instance when my life was threatened, um, did God seem distant? Um, fright? makes, um, you know, the adrenaline go up in your body and everything like, you're not really thinking about that at that time. At that time, I wasn't thinking about God. I was just thinking about get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, but another incident happened a few months earlier than that when I was in Iran. Uh, I was living there during the, uh, when the embassy was taken. 
And that was different because um, I was safely living with the mission families and at the mission compound. And when the embassy was taken and all the marching was going on, we were safe. And at that point in time, you feel threatened, but you do turn to God because you have an opportunity. You're not fleeing. Right. And, and you don't have the option of flight. You don't have the, well, no, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it was sit still and wait for the Lord to, to move. And so it was two different responses based on how immediate the threat is to your life. Yeah, absolutely. Over here, Larry. Um, we uh, were home one day and realized our daughter was missing. And we didn't know if she was playing in, in the front yard and got kidnapped or wandered off hmm. uh, so we're looking all over the house and in all the usual places she could be and finally we found her in the back of her closet sound asleep and <laughs> <laughs> we'd been yelling for her and she's a very sound sleeper so <laughs> anyway we were pretty happy when she turned up I can imagine I can imagine all right, over here. Um, when my husband left me for two weeks every single day, one person asked me out either to dinner or to lunch, never two, but one for two whole weeks every day. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. Um, I remember in 2010 was my first year to, oh, and 2010 it was uh, three months coming to America from Egypt. Mm -hmm. I was 18 and a half years old, and then I got into a car accident. I wasn't driving, and I was at PUC, uh, Pacific Union College in England, and uh, the car went off the road completely. Mm. At that time, I didn't really know the hospital system in America. I didn't have friends. Uh, the only person I knew was my dean. And, um, and at that time, I think, um, thinking back, sometimes we get into Excuse me. We get into things that we don't understand because for the longest time I was very far from G like God. I was, I was Christian. I was Adventist, and I got baptized like five years before that and became Adventist. And at that time, I I, I got so angry and I didn't know what would be the purpose of me coming here and in two, th three months get to get into a car accident, miss four weeks of school yeah. in college. Um, having to go to, through surgery all by myself. My family is not here. And I was very angry. But later on, to reflect on that, um, when the accident happened, we went off the road completely of the hill. So um, there was a big tree. And I know God wanted to save my life at that time because who, other cars fell in that same place and they died. Yeah. But that tree stopped our car, mm -hmm. and I, at that time, we were, everybody in the car was saved. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew God wanted me to be alive. Yeah. You know, at that time, I said I would have been better dead than alive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but mm -hmm. then later on, even after so many months, um, I realized that He wants me to be alive and be on Earth. And even though I didn't know my purpose in life, mm -hmm. I can tell like a year ago mm -hmm. uh, has been almost. Seven years from the from the accident, finally I was able to find my purpose in life, even though it took me a very very long time. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So sometimes we, 
I feel sometimes we don't know or we feel like God is distant yeah. at the time, <laughs> but um, I knew he was very close to me. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. It's a very dangerous road. When I was chaplain there, there were um, four young men that didn't make it, and, and it was just tragic. It just devastated our whole community for, for that uh, school year. You bring up a, a great point. These things make us ask why. In fact, I think um, coming up, one of our series this year, it'll be a couple of series from now since we've already got um, the next six months mapped out, but we need to do a series called Why. And one week, why me? Next, well, why you? And next, well, why not? And another one, why God? And just keep on going through the whys that we typically ask. Um, but run it through the filter that we do here, which is different from a typical Bible study. We don't ask, what's, the, what's it saying about me? We're asking, what does it say about the character of God? And so it, the emotion of your story, the emotion of every single one of your stories, um, I, want you to, I want you to really hang on to that. Because you realize we can read these stories about Gideon and the other judges and the other heroes in the Bible, and, and we look at it from an observer standpoint. We're like, ah, you're going to be okay. I know the end of the, of the story. But if you're like me, when I start a book, or if, if I'm going to watch some movie, I don't want someone to tell me the end. Why? Because I want to go through the same emotional roller coaster as the protagonist. And this protagonist, Gideon, is going through quite a roller coaster. We come to this point, and I, I apologize for those that have the mics, but uh, hang on to the mic because we have some, some questions coming up. But I, I want us to always run this through the filter of Scripture. In this part of the story, in Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, the NIV tells it this way. Early in the morning, Jerub Baal that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. Remember, there is no detail in Scripture that is not important. Remember, where they camped. Camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, let's stop here. Those of you who have read ahead, how many men do the, uh, the, do the Midianites, Amalekites, the people of the east, how many do they have total? 135,000. Okay? Gideon's bringing 32,000. And... And God says, you have too many men. Okay, do the math here. To God, it's, it's not a fair fight. You have too many. This is not fair. You have 32,000. They have 135,000. This isn't fair. You have too many men. So he sends away 22,000 of them. Why? Because they're scared. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, 
Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Verse 6, 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, let me help you understand what's going on here. Several things, because we've read in, in, in English, we completely miss. So here's a couple of things we've, we've jumped over. Now, it's interesting. Verse 1 does not start with, now, Gideon, early in the morning, Gideon and all his men. It starts with a different name. What name does it start with? Jeroboam. That was a name given to him after he did what? He tore down the altars to Baal. And his dad got in trouble. But then his dad stuck up for him. So it's all okay. But he gets this new name. What does the name Jeroboam mean? It means, well, let Baal contend with him. In other words, here's a man so big that, uh, okay, if... Uh, if someone wants to take care of someone tearing down Baal statues, let Baal take care of it. He's a god. So you men don't have to worry about it. Remember the story? The men came and they were very upset and they wanted uh, Gideon to be killed because he had torn down the altars to Baal. What men did that? The Israelites. Israelites were upset because Baal had in some way been insulted by Gideon. So he gets this new name. So the author here wants to remind you, this is one bad dude. Now, he looks very tremulous uh, when you first meet him in chapter 6, where he's, he's there winnowing wheat in a wine press. He's hiding down there because he's afraid he's going to lose the crop to the, uh, the pirates who come in from Midian uh, and the Amalekites and the people of the east. He's afraid he's going to lose it. And remember, they're, they're living in these mountain cave villages, underground villages. The angel comes, and what does the angel call him? <clears throat> in chapter 6. What does the angel call him? It rhymes with Heidi Warrior. Mighty Warrior. You guys are so quick. Very good. Yes, he calls him a Mighty Warrior. Now he's finally living up to it. He tore down the altars of Baal. Yeah, he does it at nighttime. He's a little bit safer at that time. But he takes tens of his servants, and he knocks down the towers of Baal. And that's how he gets the, the new name, Jarabel, which means, hey, if you're upset with what he did, let Baal contend with him. His name originally was Gideon. Now, the name of Gideon was not a positive name. Now, I don't know what your name means, but some of you are like, oh, I hope people don't know what my name really means. Because some of our names don't, don't mean something very positive, okay? When you find out the meaning. Gideon meant to cut to pieces or to scatter. That's great. Some people call that the hacker, okay? Uh, some translations say that his name means hacker. Before computers existed, he was a hacker. And here this hacker, this guy that just scattered things. He didn't build things. He didn't make things. He, he, was a, he would destroy things, just make it all go to pieces. Everything going to pieces. He goes from making things go to pieces to someone that let Baal contend with him. And so the author is trying to remind you this guy has been elevated in status in God's eyes and in the eyes of the people. And God says, um, take them down to the spring of Herod. And this is very important. 
because of what happens there and what the name means. Herod, we usually, we usually think of, of King Herod, um, but the name Herod uh, means tremble, tremble. So it's the spring or the stream of trembling. He takes them down to a place of trembling and he says, by the way, if you're trembling, go home. So it's a little play on words here. That's why the author puts it there. And so the actual word that he says is, if you're trembling, you can just fly home. And the word is the same word used for birds flying. It's just fly, fly home, little, little nervous birdies. And two-thirds of the group flies home. It's not the first time God has ordered this of men going into battle. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, where it was just part of the practice. You can look it up sometime, where if men were trembling, if men were fearful, um, you would send them home. And the, and the reasoning was you, do, you, you don't want fearful soldiers next to uh, soldiers that have worked themselves up to be brave during a life and death situation because they can spread fear throughout all the troops. And so they would send them home because fear is contagious. And then out of 32,000 men, 22,000 returned home, leaving 10,000 men to face the 135,000 Midianites and others. Now, I want you to understand something. Uh, if you jump ahead to verse 12 of chapter 7, you can understand why these grown men were trembling with fear. Why two-thirds of these men were trembling. And you can see in verse 12 of chapter 7, the Midianite and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Yes, it's an exaggeration. There's a little hyperbole here. But what they're saying is, uh, there's no way. 32,000 men against guys who, who had technology they did not have. Um, the Amalekites were the ones who had domesticated the camel, and we had spoken earlier about they were the first ones to use them in these drive-by assaults with these camels. And so here's this huge army, thick as locusts, you're up on one hillside, there's a valley between, and there's another small hillside, and against that hillside and, and towards you a little bit in the valley is just spread out so many men and so many cam camels that you just can't count. And that's why they're trembling, because they see this is impossible. Even with all of us, 32,000 men, this is impossible. Jesus had asked for a first sign. The first sign, he says, is, you know, if, uh, if these guys don't have courage, if they tremble with fear, send them home. So Jesus asked that first sign, and so Gideon has to say, okay, I'll, I'll give you that first sign, I'll ask. Can you imagine being Gideon and telling your men, I'm going to let some of you go? No, if you're Gideon, you want everyone to stay, right? You don't lose anybody. In fact, you, you need to figure out how to recruit more. You need another 100,000 plus just to be even. But the first sign God asked for is, are you willing to have courage? Because if you have courage, you can stay. If you don't have courage, you got to go. Second sign he asked for is a sign of commitment. He says, separate those who lap from those who kneel. Now, there's much debate over what this means. As you can imagine, people on each side saying, well, what does it mean that those that lap like a dog? And what does it mean that those that kneel to, to drink? And, and some are, are more alert and some are less alert. And trust me, every commentary has a different spin on this. 
Everyone trying to figure out what does this mean. In fact, some commentaries even say it was just arbitrary. It really didn't mean anything. God was just saying, I, I want uh, the smallest group. That's the commentary I disagree with, and I'll tell you why. Nothing that God does is arbitrary. You cannot find, you read the Bible cover to cover, he doesn't do anything just because. He doesn't do something just, well, I need 300, so let me just see. I'm going to say this, and I, I know that this many are going to do it, so I'm going to take them. No. There has to be a reason. The other thing is some commentaries that I disagree with say that uh, the, those that uh, were lapping like a dog uh, were more fearful, and so they were keeping their eyes up, and, and, and they're drinking. And many say instead of the tongue, they were using their hand like a tongue and just splashing that water up, up toward their chin, and they were just drinking as they were splashing it up toward their chin because they were fearful, and they were being alert because they knew at any time they'd be, they could be attacked. I disagree with that because um, God's already sent away those who are fearful, right? And so why would he start by saying, send away those who are fearful, and secondly, keep those who are fearful? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And so I disagree with that as well. But what do I know? Um, I haven't written a commentary yet. So, so I think there's, a, there's another reason. And I want to share with you something I, I found that to me was, was quite profound. I don't know if this is it, but it sure made... Uh, a whole lot of sense, and it, and it shed a little bit more light. When you actually look at how did the, the Jewish scholars look at this? This is a Jewish story. This is not a Christian story. It's a Jewish story. How did they look at this? How did they understand this? And if you look at um, the, the writings and, and interpretation uh, by a genius uh, Jewish scholar named Rashi, I want you to see what he said about lapping or kneeling. And ultimately, this is a quote of what he said. The Jewish interpretation communicated by Rashi is evidently far more profound. Gideon, it says, can ascertain the religious antecedents of his men from the way in which they prepare to drink. Idolaters were accustomed to pray kneeling before their idols. On this account, kneeling, even as a mere bodily posture, had become unpopular and ominous in Israel, and was avoided as much as possible. Hence, he who, in order to drink, throws himself on his knees, shows thereby, in a perfectly free and natural manner, that this posture is nothing unusual to him. Whereas those who have never been accustomed to kneel feel no need of doing it now, and as naturally refrain from it. It would have been difficult for Gideon to have ascertained in any other way what had been the attitude of his men toward idolatry. While quenching their eager thirst, all deliberation being forgotten, they freely and unrestrainedly indicate to what posture they were habituated. It is a principle pervading the legendary lore of all nations that who and what a person is can only be ascertained by observing him when under no constraint of any time. Okay, in today's English. At this time, it was not in any way for a Jew. Um, let me put it this way. If you were a Jew, you would not be accustomed to kneeling because it had fallen out of practice, because so many people were kneeling before idols. And we do this even in the church today. We don't do some things just to make sure that people know we're not other things, right? And certain things that we, we used to do, we don't do them anymore because we might be associated with something else. 
In this way, at this period in history, the Jews had decided it's best not to kneel when we communicate with God or we do anything because kneeling had become so associated with the worship of the pagan gods, kneeling before the idols. And so at this time, they decided, don't kneel. And so this scholar, Rashi, says the reason why God winnowed them down by who kneels and those who just stand on their feet, bend down, and use their, their hands to lap up the water, um, that shows those who were accustomed to kneeling and those who were not. I love this. Because what this shows in their mindset, as they've tried to figure out what, what did God do? Because everything he does is on purpose. What God does here, according to him, is he narrows down all the people who have gotten themselves comfortable with living under several gods and those who are uncomfortable with the idolatrous religion around them. The people who are not accustomed to kneeling as a practice. It just, when you're not thinking, you're just acting naturally you do what comes natural. And if you're not used to kneeling, you don't kneel. And so in this case, um, Rashi says, God is saying, I want those who still are loyal to me and haven't, even though they need a lot of stuff in their life. And the gods of the pagans uh, were the gods of the everyday, the gods that would help you get rich, the gods would bring the rain, the gods would help your crop, would help your family, your own personal finances. Um, if you haven't turned to those gods, you're not used to kneeling. And because of that, you're the ones that I'm going uh, to let have the ultimate story. Because I know you've remained faithful. And regardless, what I'm going to ask you to do is super crazy. What you're going to do is suicidal. You're going to let everyone know where you are, and you're going to have no backup. He needs loyal people who understand faithfulness to God. And so in this, it narrows down to the third sign God asked for is the sign of Conviction. Let all the others go home. So from 32,000, we go to 300. Can you imagine? You're there at the water. There's 10,000 of you, and 9,700 people leave. What's keeping you there? Right? If you're at some place, and they say, okay, uh, those of you that did this can go home, you're like, whoop, uh, okay, yeah, I, was, I was with them, wasn't I? Yeah, I'm, I was, uh, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with the band. Um, and you would take off. But these are courageous men. It takes, can you imagine what amount of courage it would take? We had 10,000 people in a little less than the number, of, three-fourths of the number of the people in the room here. So three out of the four sections here stay and 9,700 leave. It's up to you, these three sections right here. I'm sorry, you guys, you shouldn't have knelt. Um, <laughs> it's, it's up to this group right here, these three sections, 300 people. So... God says, I want to see your conviction. So now we have to ask our questions. God's brought it down to that 300 men. We have to ask many questions about God's character. And the first one I want to start with is, why do you think that God requires us to provide signs of courage, commitment, and conviction before he will intervene in our personal, in our personal battles? Why, why does he need to do this? Why did he have to take Gideon and his men down to this experience before they could really see victory? Harvey. If the 32,000 overcame the 135,000 by themselves, we are back where Lucifer was before he was thrown out of heaven. This mm. is the basis of the great controversy. I love this. Un unpack that for me a little bit more. 
God says, no, I am on the throne. Mm -hmm. I have made all things. I empower you. And you cannot do it on your own. I will do it with you. I will do it for you. Hmm. The people wanted to do it themselves. And God said, no. Hmm. It's not that God needs the glory. I had trouble with the word needs. Yes. It is that God is the glory. Ah. And they needed to know that in this cosmic conflict, God is the winner. Yes, I love it. I love it. It's exactly the, the balance I was looking for. Right up here, Greg. I can't help but draw a similarity between Gideon and Moses because both were asked to do very fantastic things. Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, Israel facing annihilation from, annihilation from a superior force. Yeah. Both asked for signs. Moses asked for signs too, mm-hmm. and God gave him signs. So you. You know, the circumstance, I draw a very, um, they're very similar, Mm. at least to me. Mm. But just like what uh, Dr. Elder said, it's God um, proving to the people, Mm. I am with you. Not that he needs the glory, it's for his own people's sake, Mm. not for his own that he did that. I love it. I love it. Jay. I'm going to ask you a question, Roy. Great. I studied. Why, Why did God need anybody? Why, why not three instead of 300? Why did he need anybody? That is the ultimate question. And Jay, that's why you're part of this class. <laughs> it's why you're a part of the original core group that helped design this, this community. The ultimate question is, what's this say about the character of God? What's it say about the character of God that he chooses 300 instead of just three or just Gideon? What does it say? If you look through Scripture, he does this in many different ways, in, whether it's in a battle or whether it's um, taking individuals in with him to perform miracles when Jesus was on this earth. He would bring in three sometimes uh, to see what's happening. Why does God involve certain people and not others? Because God is not exclusive. He's open. He's universal. He's available to all. He wants all to have that life-changing experience. Why is it that he chooses who he chooses? And why does he pick the number? And when you look at that, and you have to answer the question, if I were to answer that from what I understand of the character of God, is I would say, just like what Rashi says, there is a group of people who truly were sincere about being faithful to God. And those are the people that God, it's kind of like a parent. You're not supposed to have favorites, right? I'll ask you who your favorite is later. Um, (laughs) You're not supposed to have favorites, but you do. And who who is your favorite kid? It's the kid that actually wants to, most of the time, pay attention to what you're saying. (laughs) Wants to be parented. And in the same way, God being the father of us all, those of us who want to be parented, he says, I want you to have an experience. I I want you to grow. I want your faith to grow. I want our relationship to grow. And I know with you being part of this experience, you are gonna grow. And so my understanding is why would he use 300, not just Gideon or not just three, is there were 300. And in the same way that there's a group here, now we have 6,500 members at Loma Linda University Church. Praise God. And we have about 400 here. 
who refused to kneel at... No. Um, <laughs> can't wait to see you guys getting your, your, your uh, refreshments next week. Everyone's lapping it up like a dog. <laughs> but here's my question. Why do you think God has done what he's done here? Because I haven't done it. You haven't done it. God's done it. In the last two years, God has done something here. He's brought us into an experience of seeing his character that many other people have missed out. Why? Why did he bring us together? Because we're ready. We're ready to be parented. We're ready to be taught. We're ready to go into battle with him. And I think that's why Jesus chooses who he does and when he does, is because you are at a place where you're ready to grow. You're ready to be coached. You're ready to be taught. And so I think, I think that's why it was. Back here, another question. In agreement with Dr. Elder, I think it's an affirmation of the relationship. It's not that God needs, but it's an affirmation. If I meet this wonderful lady and I want her to marry me and I give her a ring and she puts it in her pocket, but she's ashamed to wear it at university church or out in public, I'm wondering, are you really committed to me? Because <laughs> what happens... This is to- hypothetical, right, Thad? <laughs> <laughs> She threw it away. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, what too often happens is we pray in that moment of fear, and then we say, you know, God, we need for it to rain or my crops are going to die. Well, mm-hmm. the weatherman said it was going to rain anyway after the rain comes. Mm-hmm. And so if it is done without, you know, we've heard a lot of nice stories. In 2001, right before Thanksgiving, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And we prayed and prayed, and she kept going downhill. And then she rallied. Uh, Some people talked about some micronutrients, and her skin got better. She got vibrant, and I was thinking, God is answering prayer. And then she died. And, you know, we always talk about the pretty stories when the prayer was answered. We thought it wasn't answered. And you say, well, just wait, and you'll know when you get to heaven. Well, it wasn't good enough. Just last week, one of my nephews that had no relationship with God, I was telling him about the Bible lab, and we spent an hour and a half on the phone talking about, and he talked about the process of watching mom die and how her faith became stronger and the witness that she was. So a lot of times I think it's too easy when the prayer is answered. It's the hard time. And during that time, a person that is now battling brain cancer here in the church told me, praise God no matter what. If you don't understand it, just keep praising him. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that relationship that changes everything. And he doesn't need us to do anything, but showing our commitment and that affirmation is what changes it. I am committed to you, and I'm going to trust you. Hmm. And then you can see that hand move. I love it, Dad. Thank you. Over here. Mike. In February 1945, the U.S. Marine Corps invaded Iwo Jima. And about seven days into the battle, six Marines raised a flag on top of Mount Suribachi. It's a very famous photograph that was taken. Mm The oldest Marine there was 21 years of age. The other ones were teenagers. Six of them, three of those six didn't make it off the island. There is a statue in Washington, D.C. that's a monument to those very brave Marines. And if you count the hands on it, 
instead of 12 hands, there's 13. And the sculptor was asked about that, and he said, that other hand is the hand of God. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I'd never heard that before. Thank you, Michael. Back here, Rebel. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, there's an interesting um, series of events that Jesus gathers the largest evangelistic meeting of his time with maybe 20,000 people. He feeds them, and then he walks away. Yeah. And uh, there's a series of things that happen. People look for him, and he walks away, and he gives, teaches them with sermons, and that bothers them, and many people leave. Then he goes to the synagogue in Capernaum, and he sheds other people away. And at the end of the story, um, only 12 remain. I don't think any modern or contemporary pastor would do that, have a large evangelistic meaning and discourage, you know, quote, you know, yeah. um, people to leave. But that's what Jesus did. He needed 12. But it, it didn't finish there. The sorting, you know, that in the Last Supper, he said, there's one too many here. It, it's an unfit. So please make a decision and leave. So he ended up with 11. But they were committed. Yeah. And I think that made the difference because those 11 changed the world in many senses. Absolutely. And when we try to take the next step, for example, you know, the first two chapters of Acts, you, you have... The disciples, now apostles, saying, now what do we do? And we think we have to have numbers. And so the first action they take is trying to decide who should replace that 12th spot that Judas vacated. And so they go through this whole process, and they played bingo or something. They cast lots and decided between two, ended up with Matthias. Ultimately, it's an excellent choice because you know what Matthias did, right? <laughs> I'm such a jerk. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything else about Matthias. Uh, it's, we, we have no idea. He probably did a wonderful job. He probably made a great casserole at Potluck and sang the loudest during church service. But we don't know anything else about him because God chooses who's going to rock the world. And God has chosen those who say, I will be faithful. I am ready to see what only God can do. I'm not here to show God what only I can do. We're together to see what can only God do, and that's what he wants to show us. Just like Dr. Elder said before, he doesn't want to take the credit so that we can't in any way have victory and share that victory. God wants the credit so we don't get cocky and say, let's go do the next battle, and we don't need God. Look how good we are. There are many churches... And I've been part of efforts in my 25 years of ministry, many efforts that we've done, and we're like, yeah, we can do this. Look at the people we have. And we go out, and we, we do an effort. We try to uh, help people connect with God, and we do all this, and we fall flat on our, on our face. Why? Because we were trying to replicate ourselves. We weren't trying to introduce God. And in doing so, we didn't need God. We had great pamphlets and great materials. And... God doesn't need your material. He needs you to be with him and, and connect so you can see what only he can do. Back here, sir. God uh, wants us to show some sign of commitment, courage, and conviction before he help us mm -hmm. in our personal battle because he wanted us to trust him. Yes. Because sometimes when we ask something 
and we really don't trust God, you kind of vacillate in your faith. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, God acts at the last minute, and I've experienced that myself. I asked him something, and he wouldn't answer me until the last mm -hmm. minute, and then he will answer. Yeah. Because he wanted us to learn to trust him, yes. and not only use him, Mm -hmm. Like Santa Claus, that you ask for something and then he will answer you, and you want him to expect expect him to give you something right away. But the trust is a relationship. You need to know God in a personal way before we can have the trust. Really, it's a relationship that we get to know God day by day, and that we know what He wants, and we will know that He will. We can depend on Him no matter what He will help us. Hmm. It, it might not be the, in the way that you expect it, but it will still turn out to be the best for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In closing, I, I just want to dovetail off of that and just help us understand from this story. Make sure we don't miss something. God is testing or asking for signs from Gideon in the same way that Gideon was testing and asking for signs from God. Gideon was testing to ask this number one question in every single one of the tests and the fleece that, it, that he put out. He's asking one question. God, are you sure you're going to come with me? Right? That's what the whole fleece is about. God, are you sure you're going to come with me? God asks for his own signs and he's asking the same question. Are you sure you're going to come with me? Okay. Are you sure? I need you with me. In the same way that you're asking me to be with you, I need you with me. Because if we're together, we're, we're going to have an incredible story. They're going to write it down. One day, people are going to call it scripture and read about it and talk about it in the Bible lab. And I need to know, are you going to be with me? Because with me, we can write a whole different story. So it doesn't matter if... if the, the people that you're surrounded with are trembling with fear. It doesn't matter if the majority of the people in your church just don't get it. It doesn't matter if the majority of people in your church are doing things that are, in fact, pagan. And they trust pagan and superstition more than they trust God. They know outside the church more than they know inside the church. It's okay. Because I'm testing to ask you this one question. Are you going to be with me? God does not test Gideon in a way to see if he'll fail. We've already talked about this before. God, God, if God knows everything, he doesn't need to know, are you going to fail or are you going to pass? He's not testing you pass and fail. He's trying to build up your confidence. And in this case, he's trying to tell Gideon, look, in the same way you tested me, I'm going to test you. You asked if I'm going to be with you, I'm going to ask, are you going to be with me? Because together, I'm going to show you something that the only way you can tell the story is by including one member, and that's me, God the individual who cares for you and will always care for you and will always be with you. But I, I've given you a choice and you have a choice to not be with me. You have a choice to enter every battle of life and not include me. My question, the signs I'm asking is just this simple. Will you be with me? Because with God, all things are possible. That is absolutely true, and it's my prayer that all of us never forget that, to allow God to be part of our battles. 
and to truly prove to him we we don't want to do anything without him. Now, thank you so much for joining us for this past session, but the adventure continues in the next session when we jump ahead and take a look at the very beginning, the introduction to this very iconic character known as Samson. But before we take a look at his life, we have to take a look at how God interacted with Samson's parents because it displays a lot about the character of God and some things you've maybe never heard of. And so I hope that you'll join us back for episode 43 as we take a look at the character of God when he introduced himself to the parents of Samson. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.